At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to another episode of Space Ghost. Keep it to keep it. Ooh, I love that old cartoon. I didn't. I, cartoon Network is almost after my time, but I did watch that show. That was one of my favorite shows. By the way, Ira is literally sitting here holding an egg and eating it like some sort of super villain. I don't know. It's a hard-boiled egg. It's weird. I just came from Soul Cycle. Oh, okay. Soul Cycle. Do they are they like take a handful Soul of Cycle. eggs on your way out? What that makes no sense. Soul Cycle. Oh, you're trying to get a gig now. I'm wearing a, a sweatshirt uh, advertising the gym I go to, and Ira thinks I got it for free because I mentioned them once, which is not true. Mm. Well, all I'm saying is, if we want to turn these Friday keep it briefs into SpawnCon, I'll do it. Okay. So, are you aware that Ira is soulless? Because he's just announcing it now. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to chat about a bunch of things. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about R. Kelly. We're going to talk about Michael Jackson again. Sure. And we're going to talk about some books with Kara. Right. Which she's into. Tell me more about these books, Kara. I don't know. What is she, Chaucer? I, <laughs> the Page Master? Who is this? Have you uh, seen that movie? God, it's bad. With Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Yes. I want to say Whoopi Goldberg plays like a Cheshire Cat type person. <laughs> I know I had that VHS. Yeah. And I don't think I watched it that often. If you want something harrowing, look at Whoopi Goldberg's mid-90s credits. Man, she was in everything. A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court parody, she's in everything. <laughs> um, we would be remiss with Lewis here to not mention Alex Trebek. Oh, God. Guys, are we not all devastated? I know Jeopardy is my brand, and I talk about it probably too much on Keep It, but... Uh, yeah, Alex Trebek announced in a very straightforward video that he's been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Well, he's very straightforward. Say what? There you are. In general. Right. He's a wonderful reader. Kara would love that. <laughs> Nobody handles clues like Alex. Uh, I just want to say about him, Alex is really kind of the last of a very old guard of people who actually became famous because they were good at being game show hosts. They weren't an actor first. Uh, maybe they came from radio, but now we live in this universe where you know you give the prices right to Drew Carey or like Wayne Brady takes over, let's make a deal. And Alex is just... From an era I really miss of people who are really good at being MCs who... Him and Chuck Woolery. That's right. Oh, God. That, How dare you bring up that, Chuck right that now? That racist monster. I want to bring him up because I know Alex is important to you, but also, we, weirdly, very important to me. Uh, I didn't talk about it yesterday because uh, you know it just sort of hit me, but I saw so many people on my timeline just talking about it and it's like of course we all grew up watching jeopardy yeah his his hosting stint on that show is older than i am he started in 1984 he's brilliant at that job and i think it's a job that people kind of take for granted people say things like oh he just pretends he knows all the answers he honestly has never pretended that he's he's this like supportive uncle who wants the best from you and if if you don't bring it he is slightly disappointed but i think it's that level of expectation that has kept jeopardy amazing over the past 32 years that compels the best of contestants to try out for the show. I just wish him the best, and I wish we had more rad, born and bred game show hosts. 
Well, I mean, you. Oh, what, I'm gonna say. When are we gonna give you one? I, I, uh, give me a show where just people say things about Meryl Streep at me, and then I respond with "That's rad" or "You're wrong." Someone give him that show. Right. Thanks, everybody. Not because I want to get rid of him, but because I want something positive to happen in Lewis's life. <laughs> I need just one thing, you guys. All that positivity came from this morning's Soul Cycle class. We'll be right back. <laughs> So much has happened since we were last in here, which literally. Is, which is the annoying thing about Keep It. It seems like the news arranges itself around what's convenient for us. Gail decided to drop her R. Kelly interview literally right after Keep It. Yeah. And it was, you know what? I did not think that I wanted to hear anything else from this man. And I was like, just put him in prison. You right. know, documentary was enough. I'm disgusted seeing him. But it was riveting. Yeah. I, to be honest, I kind of had forgotten how scary he is. Just the amount of bizarre defenses of uh, and uh, uh, refusals of what Gail was saying were astounding. But the number one thing that sticks with me is when he says, I regret having too big a heart. I mean, if you know him intimately, imagine repeating that as a defense for him. He just has too big a heart. I mean, you sound like you're in a traumatizing relationship. Isn't that what Michael Jackson was saying? Too? Right. Yeah. Like, if 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 I'm guilty of anything, it's loving the children. <laughs> it's so also <laughs> he was also a French art dealer. I don't know who that was. <laughs> Uh, uh, but it's hey, just, bon dieu, I got the Basquiat uh, <laughs> in, my, in my van. It's just so interesting here a narcissist defend himself because their their idea of what is rational is so out of whack. Like mm-hmm. he thought he was speaking to us and it was just revealing his psychosis again and again. What's crazy is a lot of people were comparing it to the Kavanaugh uh, interview. Yeah, being uh, offended that yes. he was even there. Yeah. Yes, but what's, what's sad is... Uh, R. Kelly will unfortunately not get a seat on the Senate. I, it's, it seemed inevitable. I'm, it's very crazy. <laughs> also, I have to say, everybody is praising Gail King for the interview, but it was pretty amazing how the more extreme he got, the more hyper-reactive he got, the calmer she seemed to get. I'm telling you, when he burst out of his seat, I thought she was going to fall asleep. Instead, she said, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually kind of would have been better if she said R again and again. <laughs> R. R. <laughs> Dot Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought Gail has always been great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sad that we keep sort of making women have to interview these people. Yeah, the single worst people, single you know, worst men. Uh, yes, just these deceptive men. I mean, someone brought up, you know, the Robin Roberts and Jesse Smollett, Smollett interview, which, I mean, I'm glad we haven't heard about that news story. Yeah. In a minute. That, God, we, I thought that was going <laughs> to drown us all. I thought I was going to drown in Jesse Smollett uh, 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 internet theories. <laughs> I uh, became 4chan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I'm just glad that the interview was, I don't know. It showed, it, I feel like, I felt like part of it was necessary. It mm-hmm. showed who he is, reminded people that he's crazy. Yeah. off his rocker you know it it wasn't just sort of hearing his music and hearing the fans and like these people trying to bail him out but even him you know it's like 
people playing music out of cars uh, when he gets out of prison mm-hmm. uh, after bail, you know, um, people dancing on cars. It's that same sort of thing with Michael Jackson. Yeah. And just like speaking of Michael Jackson, you know, sort of like that Janet Jackson interview. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wanted to clarify, like, I don't think any of us thinks that Janet knew about this. I'm not looking for answers from And Janet I'm not Jackson. looking for answers from her either. I just find it interesting that the Jackson family estate, you know, is against the documentary, obviously. And I just always find it interesting that Janet is never positioned with that. It's always like... Jermaine and like the others, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe Latoya. Who knows? I don't know. But it's all very disjointed. And just when you hear the Jackson family, your immediate instinct just for me goes to Janet. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I ever mention her and like I'm pondering what she's thinking is because I love her. Yeah. Uh, she I love her to be mo- a superstar with a flawless yeah. career. I love yeah. her more than J- Michael. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. And you're just maybe uh, more influential as a dancer, even. That's, yeah. That's my weird hot take. I definitely think so because I think that aside from, you know, we talked about Wade Robson and Britney and Instinct and stuff, but just Janet's style and even like the Miss You Much chair dance. Oh, like, please. So much of that has been replicated through female pop stars we've seen since then. Yeah. You know. Please check out the, uh, is, is it the 1990 AMAs where she and Paula Abdul do a back-to-back performance? I think Paula does The Way That You Love Me and Janet does Escapade. And the two of them are such specific superstar dancers of that time. And it's really, really timeless. When it comes on in a gay bar, everybody shuts up and watches. Mm. The only answers I want from Janet, actually, are why feedback wasn't a number one hit. <laughs> she doesn't know. Well, that's what <laughs> She tried, damn it. <laughs> But no, I'm ex- I'm excited to see her in Vegas too. I just I love her, and I'm always just like wondering what Janet Jackson is thinking in general. Please, I want to know how to get to that island, right? Uh, <laughs> the brigadoon that she lives in, Did that she, she have... comes out. Uh, Did she have so a good often. time in that emirate she was in for a while? Yeah, <laughs> Qatar. Uh, last episode we talked about oneandsix.org where men can't reach out if you know hearing all of this Michael Jackson news um, is triggering or you want to talk about um, being a male victim of sexual abuse there is also rain which has been helping people for 25 years it's the national sexual assault telephone hotline so that helps a variety of people mm-hmm. so you can call that number at 800 656 Four six seven three, which is hope. When I'm back, I'm going to talk to Kara Bell Brown herself mm. about some books. Lewis, do you think that she tried to find the bookseller from Beauty and the Beast when she was in Paris? Oh, I'm sure. Do you know who I, I'm now picturing? <laughs> Good morning, Kara. Do you know who I'm picturing Kara as? Have you ever seen the movie Monuments Men, where Kate Blanchett is a librarian with yes. glasses? That's her. That's Kara Brown at work. <laughs> we'll be right back. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. 
And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And (laughs) I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Black Stories, Black Truths. It's a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Kara, you are always trying to talk about books. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, I'm just like, why don't you just go interview somebody about a book? Oh, my God. That is such a coincidence (laughs) because today I am talking to author Britt Bennett about her book, The Mothers, because I have told you people over and over to read some fucking books. Who should read this book in particular? So her book, The Mothers, came out a couple years ago. It's amazing. I bought it, have not read it, because I don't read. I can't read. Oh, right, right. But I just buy books, so you think that I have So I think that you can. Yeah. Well, that jig is up, isn't it? (laughs) But I wanted to recommend her book to someone, because I'm always giving book recommendations. And today I am recommending that book to Matt Damon, because it's a story about black people, and I'm not sure he's aware that those exist. You know, I think that there was <laughs> w- like one in a scene in The Departed. 
Well, oh no, Anthony Anderson was in The Departed. Oh, because I saw it on TV recently, and <laughs> fin- be- so I was watching The Departed, and I forgot that like literally everyone dies, which I know sounds stupid, but I I forgot that everyone dies, and I watched Anthony Anderson. Literally, like the end of like Macbeth or something. Yeah, it's like boom, literally boom, everyone, boom. Um, other than Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> so Anthony Anderson was in it, but basically, I just want to you know I'm, I'm recommending books to our listeners, um, but also if anyone else happens to be listening to this, if someone who knows Matt Damon, they can tell him that not every story has to be set in Boston. Um, (laughs) There is a world outside of Southie. And those people live full, interesting lives that are worthy of hearing about and recording. You know, we need more movies about black people in Boston. Proud Mary tried to do it, and it did not work. I mean, I I went to school outside of Boston, and no, I didn't go to Harvard, which is the jerk's way of saying they went to Harvard. Do we need movies about black people in Boston? We need movies about black people leaving Boston, being Mm. like, enough of this. I want a movie about the black guy from the real world, Boston. Montana? Was was that a girl? I don't remember. Anyway. We've gone off topic, but (laughs) it's Friday, and this is a little extra, a little keep it brief, and Britt Bennett is amazing, and I am so excited to talk to her. One of the things, too, about her, her novel is, like, I think it really, like, I've talked about this a lot. I, I wrote an article about this a while ago about like quote unquote slave movies. And for me, I absolutely think that there are certain historical events and things that should be immortalized in film. And like, you know, I think it is important to have movies about the civil rights movement and and, and the Great Migration, which we don't have any movies about, but and about our history. But sometimes like when you're an artist, you just want to like make a fucking rom-com. Mm-hmm. You just want to like write a comic book. You just want to like ha- tell stories that involve women and people of color and isn't necessarily about the struggle or, or whatever it is. And I think our stories just naturally contain those topics anyway because racism is inescapable Mm -hmm. but that was one of the things I loved about the mothers was like it was just this really like engrossing story that was just about like two girls who are best friends and like they are black and that does matter but you know it's not it's not the point of the book well until someone makes that Midwest Passage rom-com that I've been looking forward to. Uh, so much to do. You can go write it. Yeah, I'll go do that. And while I do that, you can listen to Kara talk to Britt Bennett about the mothers. I am here with author Britt Bennett, author of The Mothers. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks well, I guess it's just me. me. This is We're trying some new things, so it's going to be some adjustments. No, thanks for having me. Of course. So I have to tell you a story about your book. I read it the day after the 2016 election <laughs> in one sitting. Okay. And like I was just, you know, like I finally stopped crying, I assume. And like I sat down and I was up until like three in the morning, read it in one sitting. And I think that I just really needed to like escape the reality of the world. And I fully just like jumped into the mothers and did not come up for air because <laughs> I did not want to turn to reality. <laughs> well, I hope that that had some type of comfort for you and of that very traumatic moment. Yeah. That we we're all collectively living. <laughs> I know. And like, I think also, so the mothers is about, um, two young women who we meet when they're in their teens, Nadia and Aubrey. And it's basically, they're both without mothers. Yes. And um, it's this community. One of the things that I loved is this community that you set this in, if you could talk about that. Yeah. So it's set in Oceanside, which is kind of where I grew up. 
it's a northern part of San Diego for people who may or, a lot of people ask me if I made it up if this was a real place. Um, but yeah, it's just a suburb of San Diego, and I was always just kind of interested in this sort of coastal black community. I'd never really read a lot of books about black people who grew up like in beach towns. I've um, literally never read about black people who grew up in beach towns before this book. I mean, most of it was you know obviously the South or in like urban cities yeah. um, in the West or you know Midwest or whatever. So I think as I I went to college in the Bay Area and as I got a little bit of geographical distance from Oceanside, I became kind of interested in the fact that like this is kind of a weird place that I grew up and Mm -hmm. and wanted to set the book there. Yeah. Like I'm from the West Coast. I think a lot of narratives about black people, you know, like it's you have a lot in the South and you have a lot in like New York and Chicago. And I feel like our West Coast stories (laughs) don't always get told that much. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I think that I've started to increasingly think of myself as a California writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever that may entail, because I think I am interested in sort of writing into that. I don't want to say void, but I think, you know, there are many more stories you could find on television or in film of black people in California than probably books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think a lot of uh, the the Warmth of Other Suns, a book that I bring up constantly, because until everyone who listens to this podcast has read this book. I will not stop talking about the warmth of other sons. But, you know, that talks about the black people that came to Los Angeles, you know, early. And I think one of the things I loved about Insecure was that it was set in L.A. Right. And not in New York or somewhere else. Right. And seeing us out here. Right. Because we're here. But also, so in the book, uh, it's the two girls and it's it's them growing up. And there's a plot point about abortion in it that I, I think you handle in, like, such an interesting way because one of the characters has an abortion and the way that it stays with both her and the the boy who the young man who impregnated her and i was wondering if you could talk about telling those types of stories in the book right well i think i didn't think about it being a controversial choice as I was writing it, which I think is probably for the best, Um, because if I had really tried to engage with the politics of of that type of a plot, I might have just been like too afraid to even take it on. Um, So I just was interested in this choice that this girl makes when she's a very young age and how she continues to think think about it and live with it. Um, But I was very conscious. I didn't want to write a novel that had some type of a political agenda of changing somebody's mind when it comes to abortion. People have read that into the the novel, um, to my frustration a bit. Um, There have been people who have said, oh, this book is too pro-choice. There have other people who said, oh, this book is too pro-life. I've had people from all sides kind of of critique it about that. Um, But I wasn't interested in sort of having a polemic. I just wanted to think about this really complicated choice that this girl makes and how she continues to think about it and how it continues to affect her and also her community. One, I brought up uh, that plot line in in regards to the male character, where I don't think, I mean, in general, we don't talk about abortion in like an open and good way most of the time. And then in particular, men, and I think like they are secondary in that conversation for sure. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) But you have this character who was really affected by that and like has a really difficult time with it. And like, I don't think that I've I've engaged with, I mean, whether it's like real life stories or fiction of like how men are processing abortion. Yeah. And I think that took a big stretch of my imagination to sort of uh, explore that plot there, Um, in part because like you're saying, men are kind of absent from these stories, but sort of for a good reason, you know, like they should be secondary if this is, you know, a choice a woman is making about her body. Um, But at the same time, I I think when I first started writing it, I thought about this character, Luke, reacting to this abortion in the way we might assume that this young guy would 
would react, which is, oh, he's just relieved and he's kind of off the hook. Um, but then I'm always just like, okay, how can this be more complicated? How can this be more interesting? And I was like, it will be actually be more interesting if he reacts in the opposite way we think he might. So it required a lot of reading that I had to do of men's opinions on abortions. <laughs> Where did um, you find that? So much deep diving and very <laughs> depressing, like corners of the internet. I mean, so, it took me to some like men's rights activist oh, no. sort of stuff. And, you know, a lot of it was just, you know, sort of terrible, misogynistic, you know, all the stuff you might expect. But there was a lot of genuine pain that I found so interesting of, you know, men who felt kind of helpless, like they were sort of powerless in this choice that affected them, not as much as it affected the woman, maybe, but it still did. And and that sort of complexity of that. So I liked the idea of Luke being this like young black man who had a complex and like emotional inner life, because I think that was also the types of characters I didn't counter enough or as much as I want to in fiction. Yeah. I mean, I it's interesting hearing you even just say as a young black man, because obviously I know all of the characters are black and like, but in reading it and I feel like it's really easy to say this and it's like a terrible compliment it's not a compliment but like I would read it sometimes and I imagine a lot of characters as black whether they are or not in the book (laughs) but in reading this I sort of forgot at some point just because the story was so amazing and I think that when you actually have the people telling their own stories race comes up when it needs to and it doesn't when it's not necessarily applicable. And I think like, you know, there's a scene when they're at the abortion clinic and one of the, one of the people that works there, you know, the girl thinks that she's looking at her like some black girl who's just coming in for another abortion. And it was, you know, I think, I think that's some, I'm wondering like how conscious that is because I feel like it probably isn't when shockingly black people don't have to think about it constantly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I think for me, I think of this as a book um, I mean, I've had that that sort of feedback a lot. And I, I think about it as a book that's inflected by race, but the plot does not hinge on racism. And, you know, it's it's like racism is not the most interesting thing that happens to me. Yeah. You know, I'm assuming the same for you. Um, I think often people expect black characters to be acted upon by whiteness. Mm-hmm. And that is our narrative is us sort of reacting to and and being acted upon by by either white people or these systems or whatever. And obviously those things happen and obviously that's a part of life. But at the same time, I'm like, this is not the most interesting part of my life, not the most interesting part of lives of anybody of color who is, you know, moving around being a complex full person. So to me, I, I wanted it to, you know, I, I, I remember I'd have, um, there were moments where my editor would be like, well, why are you mentioning like the race of this person like at the party or whatever? At one point, Nadia, she goes to like this, like, like, I think I called it like a white kid party or whatever mm-hmm. on the beach. Um, and like growing up in San Diego, I know exactly what type of party that was right. that she went to. And nothing racist happens to her <laughs> at this party. But it is a white kid party. And I wanted to acknowledge that yeah. as part of like f- filling out the texture of this world, not in a way that this is some, you know, somebody calls her a name at this party, or whatever, but just to f- flesh out the texture of this world to show that she is somebody who is thinking about race and is conscious of it, but her whole being is not defined by it. Right. One of my favorite clips just ever is this interview with Ice Cube where he's talking about Straight Out of Compton and how they'd basically been snubbed at the Oscars and he says something along the lines of we should have put a slave in the movie (laughs) and we would have gotten a nomination. And so I'm wondering for you in the process of developing and writing and and selling and, and promoting the book, if you got that type of, you know, if you got any of that sort of feedback of like, why isn't there like, 
why didn't something racist happen to her at the party? Because I, you know, I think that it's, it gets to a, it, it, I have a really big problem with that, particularly in film. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anyone was that explicit about it, but I definitely know there were readers who had questions about it. I had, I think one of the first events I did, I had a, a white woman stand, um, stand up during the Q&A and it was just like, you know, why, I had people ask me, like, why wasn't the book set in, like, an urban area? Why wasn't it, what, what um, the question was, what political point were you trying to make by setting it in San Diego? Oh, um, or, you know, people saying, you know, I... Did she know there are black people in San Diego? Right, that there are black people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I had people ask questions like that. I had people ask, um, you know, about, oh, were you trying to, like, intentionally downplay race in the book? Um, people reading a lot of intentionality into what I thought was just, like, me depicting the lives of these characters in this specific place. So, you know, again, like I said, I think there are a lot of readers who um, maybe subconsciously expect a certain type of black narrative. Um, they expect these uh, stories that are familiar, these stories of oppression, which obviously, like I said, happen, happened historically, happen now, all of that. Um, but that is sort of the single story they expect from black characters. And like I said, I do think there is an aspect of still thinking like white people are the most interesting thing that happens to black people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, I, I take great inspiration from Toni Morrison, who, you know, is like, I'm going to write about these black communities that are strange, um, that live in these worlds where the the most, you know, they rarely are interacting with white people often. They're not defined by the white people they interact with. And, you know, I, I, I think I'm grateful for these writers who came before me doing things like that and not feeling like they have to sort of pander uh, to a white gaze or an assumed white readership. Yeah. I mean, one of... Something that I have felt and guilty is the wrong word and I sort of get mad at myself for even thinking it but when I've been I've been trying to write some features and like I just want to write rom-coms right. where like everyone happens to be whatever they are. Right. And um I had this feeling when I left Jezebel to go write for Grownish where I was like uh especially cuz it was right after Trump had been elected and I was like I should be doing something else. <laughs> like I should yes. be doing something more like quote unquote important or like as if my blogging was going to change anything. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've thought that with in writing these movies where I'm like, I want to just write for now, at least like fun shit. Right. And maybe one day I can write something, you know, something that the Oscars would like. But, right, um, right. but I'm wondering if you feel any of that guilt at all. I mean, I I do. And I also like I I hear what you're saying, particularly in this moment. Um, I have in some ways very intentionally refused to kind of engage um, in the sort of Trump think piece market, Um, in part because I don't want to devote all my energy to to thinking and all my creative energy to thinking about him. But at the same time, I, I think about, you know, I was thinking about Beale Street which, you know, I thought was a fantastic mm-hmm. movie. And I was thinking about this, like, criticism I, I saw from some people that the movie was too beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, why don't black people deserve beauty? Like, right. why don't our stories deserve to be told in a beautiful way? Why don't we deserve stories of black joy or seeing black people fall in love or any of these types of things? Why isn't that in itself sort of radical and important? So to me, I do think that there is something political about that. I think um, regardless of whether you are, you know, right, writing something that is more explicitly political. Um, I think the idea of showing black people being complex people, falling in love, experiencing joy, experiencing all these human emotions, I think of that as important work and as radical work, honestly. Yeah. I mean, that that's an excellent segue into 
my uh, so on this segment, I'm going to be recommending books. So I'm recommending your book to someone. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm recommending your book to Matt Damon, actor, director, auteur, um, <laughs> because Matt Damon makes some really white shit. Like when you look back at his, at his, a lot of his, you know, and I think he gets his get out of jail free card is like, it's in Boston. So it's fine. But, um, you know, I, and I think specifically to the moment he had on Project Greenlight with Evie Brown, where they were talking about, um, it's this HBO show about they're making a movie. And uh, he basically said something along the lines of the diversity will be on the screen, not behind the camera. So they were arguing for a certain writer to get the, to be chosen and have their movie made. And so he saw diversity as just like, well, there's going to be some black people or whoever on the screen. We don't necessarily need them to be writing, which is truly the exact opposite way. Right. (laughs) I feel that they should be looking at things, but I think, you know, this idea of just like our stories that are just our stories. And that is why I'm recommending this to Matt Damon. Do you have any thoughts for Matt Damon? <laughs> any suggestions for him? I mean, I just think, you know, I think everybody should, um, you know, read widely, read people of color. Um, I think if you're someone who's interested in uh, American literature and you're not reading black people and particularly you're not reading black women, then you're not interested in American literature. <laughs> um, you know, black women are really killing it right now as far as people who are really exciting to read. Um, Angela Florinoy, Jasmine Ward, you know, mm-hmm. winning National Book Awards every year. Um, <laughs> Toni Morrison, um, you know, I'm really excited to see that documentary. It's it's Sundance yeah. right now about her. So, so yeah, just read widely, read outside of your, you know, your kind of point of view, and and you know, experience somebody else's life. That's that's what I love about fiction. It's the it's the only art form that really allows you to think another person's thoughts mm-hmm. and feel another person's feelings in this really intimate way. It's the only time in your life you can ever really know what's sort of like to be somebody else. Right. And and that's what I I love about the form. Something I say all the time is that I feel like we've seen the full spectrum of white men. Like we've (laughs) like we've seen you've seen their stories. No others to be discovered. No, but I mean you've seen almost the you know, you've seen rich white men and 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 poor ones and ones that are evil but with a heart of gold (laughs) and like the anti-hero and get like you've seen a lot of different versions of who they can be and what their lives can be like. And I think pretty much every other group of people. I mean like white women would be a close second, but I think even then there are a lot of gaps there. Um, I think pretty much every other type of person doesn't have the full spectrum of just who they can be, right? Um, which is one of the things I love about your book so much and something that I think people don't think about when they're reading books all the time. Right. Just like there's a lot of different types of way to be anything. Absolutely. And like it would behoove us all for everyone to, <laughs> you know, and I think and I think it's also what stories you find interesting. Right. Because if you don't, um, if you haven't engaged with, if you've only engaged with like black authors in the context of like we're, we're talking about slavery or whatever, right. you're not going to find our other stories interesting. Right. And I think it essentially comes down to sort of like that really huge and important question throughout history, which is who gets to be a person? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it comes down to reading outside of your race or your gender or whatever. Who do you consider to be a person who has a complex interior life the way you have a complex interior life? Um, so, you know, I think that I hope people continue to go out and read widely and read different people and 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 write your stories also for all the writers out there. It's like you perfectly knew 
to to go with my theme of go read books, <laughs> which is which is the import the the point it's of a all this. Yes. Take, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I mean, think I can be on board. You'd be surprised. <laughs> um, I keep I I was at a college the other night, and I was like, guys. I know you're in school, so everyone around you is reading books. But what <laughs> you will find when you leave is like people do not read books. That is very true, and it is it is not a helpful decision on their part. But um, so I want everyone to read the Mothers. I want Matt Damon, <laughs> in particular, to go read the Mothers and make some some movies with some other people in it. And also, it is just like. I hadn't didn't say this before because it feels self-explanatory, but it's so beautifully written. Too. Thank like you. the story is wonderful, and if you're a writer in particular, it will make you mad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being here, Britt. Thanks for having me. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 